So today we're um, we're going to do a, a, a subject that nobody probably likes to preach on. Um, it's kind of about as popular as trying to discipline a toddler on aisle seven in the super Walmart. Um, and it's called church discipline. So we're going to talk about what Scripture says about how to practice church discipline. At the most base level, though, it's really just confrontation. It's how to deal with confrontation, maybe even conflict, in a loving, humble way that leads to healing in the Okay? Um, churches over church history have done everything from torturing people to doing nothing in the whole gamut of the different ways that they practice or do not practice church discipline. How about we avoid those extremes and talk about something that makes a little more sense and uh, maybe a lot closer to what Jesus has, has got laid out for us today. So Matthew 18, um, we're going to be starting in verse 15. Now, if you remember at the beginning of Matthew 18, Jesus asked a question of his disciples who were his audience in chapter 18. He said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Of course, he knew that they all wanted to be great in his kingdom, and they were all jockeying for position and arguing about who was going to sit at his right and who was going to sit at his left, and they all wanted that. And they were just totally looking at the kingdom of God through the eyes of man instead of realizing that Jesus flips everything upside down in the way he does things in his kingdom. If you want to be great, you must become the least. You must be one who desires and is willing to serve the least, the last, and the lost, motivated by love and humility. Disciples, the twelve, they weren't there yet, and that's okay. We're not there yet either in a lot of ways. But I say all that to say this. The rest of chapter 18 is Jesus' way of answering that question, who is the greatest? And we've already looked at We spent two weeks on this chapter already. This, is, this chapter is just really loaded, and we won't finish it today. But today, he's going to talk about how we disciple one another when there's conflict. How do we, con how do we actually confront somebody? Or how do we allow someone to confront us? How do we respond to that confrontation? And, and he gives us very clear instructions. It's really three strikes and you're out, if you want a kind of a crass way of saying it. But I think what you're going to see is that Jesus' aim is very merciful and gracious. Remember, the, just last week we looked at Jesus talking, if you have a hundred sheep and one wanders off, he doesn't go, well, I've got 99 more, I'm good. That he, he mobilizes all his resources and he goes after that one because he loves that one. That values, he values that one. And we said that this is not an evangelistic parable, at least not in Matthew's telling. It's, an, it's for the church. So chapter 18, the context is Jesus is speaking to believers about how they're to speak to believers. It's how believers, Christians, those who profess Christ and follow him in practice and in the context of a local church, how they interact or how they should interact, right? And so with that, let's jump in and see what he has to say. Starting in verse 15, we've seen, um, Mike's already read through that for us, and we, I'm grateful for that. Now, he was reading out of the ESV translation, English Standard Version, which is an excellent literal translation. Highly recommend it. Okay? I typically, and am today, preaching out of the NIV, New International Version, which is a dynamic equivalency. So, word-for-word -word translation is literal translation like ESV. A phrase-for-phrase -phrase translation is NIV. Okay? Same idea, it's just a different way to get to what both... All the scholars in both of those translations are trying to do, and that is to get an accurate 
the essence of what it's trying to say. Okay, And so the reason I'm pointing that out today is because in verse 15, the ESV puts something in and footnotes it, and the NIV takes it out and footnotes it. But they're both trying to get us to see that this is the meaning of what's there. So different translations exist because of different mindsets as far as how do we want to approach, philosophy of how to approach translations, but they're all trying to accomplish... Most of them are trying to accomplish the same thing, and that is they're trying to communicate God's Word to us in a way we can understand. If I was, if I was sitting here holding my Greek New Testament, we, none of us would understand what I was reading, including me, okay? All right, so fortunately we have multiple, we have multiple translations, which is helpful, but at least one in English is really great. So let's go with that, starting in verse 15. If your brother, some translations at or your sister, because context is this is for brothers and sisters in Christ. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. See, no, so that's the NIV. You had um, ESV up there before. Can you put that one up there for me? I know I'm throwing you a curve. So they're going to throw up the one that Mike um, read. If your brother and brother or sister NIV sins against you, it's not in NIV, but it's footnoted that in some of the original manuscripts you can find against you there. Context would reinforce this idea that this is referring to a situation where a brother or sister in Christ sins against you. It's personal. It doesn't have to be limited to that. I don't think it's limited to that. But I wanted to make sure that, because you're going to, some of you are going to go, wait a minute, where do you get those words? So I just want you to see, because there's several of those in this verse. Now, let me start over. And we'll, from the beginning, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This is the beginning of spiritual confrontation. This is the, the level of, of church discipline that all of us should be practicing. Okay? Um, my bottom line for today is this. We practice church discipline by lovingly confronting one another with the aim of restoring relationships. We practice church discipline by lovingly confronting one another with the aim of restoring relationships. That's the goal. Reconciliation, restoration, that's the goal. That's always the goal. When we're confronting someone, it's not to beat them down or beat them up. It's not to make them look bad or pour shame on anybody. When we confront somebody, the goal is uh, it's usually going to be from a situation that there's a hurt in that relationship and we're trying to fix that. And Jesus is giving us some principles here that really help us do this well, okay? Notice that he says that the first confrontation is in private, okay? He doesn't use that word, but he describes it, right? Go and point out their fault if your brother or sister. Um, and also, he, it's these, we're talking about two believers. And I think it, early on it could be any two believers. I think as he progresses through this, he's limiting it to believers within the same local church. And you'll see why, I think, by the time we get to the end. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Go, if you aren't afraid to write in your Bible, write or underline under that just between the two of you. This is what we typically do when this happens. When someone points out your sin, we typically, what do we typically do? We push back. We get defensive. Or we don't say anything, and then, they, then we depart, and then we go and we start talking to people. Can you believe what they said to me? Can you believe that? I can't. We're all offended and all this. And that's not what Jesus is saying to do. Okay? He's going to give us the very clear instructions on how we should respond. Just between the two of you, 
if they listen to you, you've won them over or you've gained them. It's not that you've won the argument. It's that you've won them back into relationship. Okay? So if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. Okay? That's, that's, if that happens, you've won them over and you're done and no one else has to know. See how little drama there is there? Because nobody else knows. There's nothing to talk about. Because you didn't run off and talk to other people about how that person wronged you. You, you went to the person who is another believer. This is not instructions on how to confront a lost person. These are instructions to how to confront lovingly another believer. Okay? You go to them one-on-one, just between the two of you. If they listen, you've won them over and you're done. And, and the, there's healing that is, occur, is occurring in that relationship, both relationally between the two people and vertically between our relationship with God. And there's two. If that doesn't happen, strike one. Right? Here we go, verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, and then he says why, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay, this is a principle we found in, in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 19.15. To have, to have um, credibility and integrity in the process of trying to determine what's the evidence and what does this lead. We're trying to get to the truth. Two or three witnesses was required in the Old Testament, and Jesus is using that principle here. So what is he saying? He's saying if you confront someone, and you do it, hopefully you're doing it lovingly and humbly, but even if you don't, they, and they don't respond with humility, and they don't respond with repentance, okay, bring in another person or two. Now, you, there may be a good reason why they didn't repent. They may not be actually guilty of what you're accusing them of. This is another reason why the two or three witnesses is a good thing. See, it's for the protection of the one being accused as well as the one that's accusing. Okay, there's protection here. And so you have these witnesses, and so there's a couple of reasons for so So if that person's incorrect in what they're accusing that person of, or if they're exaggerating it even, the other two can bring some objectivity to it because they don't have a dog in that hunt necessarily. At least that's the idea. In fact, if you really want to be gracious to the other person, bring somebody that they know and love and trust as one of those witnesses. If you really want to see healing, you'll go... You'll think that through, and you won't bring your two best friends. You'll bring people of integrity that they also respect so that the, we can get to where we need to be, okay? So he says, and so he says, uh, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, strike two, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this would be, if this doesn't work, this is strike three. But let's unpack this a little bit because this makes it sound very much like, oh, we can do this in a week. Let's move on. Let's get this going. That's not the goal. The goal isn't to move through these steps as fast as possible. It's also not to drag your feet. The, the, the idea here, remember, is reconciliation. It's to restore the relationship with as few people involved as possible, with as little drama as possible, with as little stirring up the body about something that doesn't matter if we can deal with it here. Let's just deal with it here. Okay? This makes sense if you think about things at home. Okay? Let's say your family is, your family, all your family are members of the church and you have a, a fight at home. 
Well, they need to work it out. You need to help them, parents. If it's your kids, you need to help them. Kids, if it's your parents, you might need to help them. <laughs> work, it, work it in such a way that leads to lovingly restoring the relationship. Okay? Everybody in the church doesn't need to know about that. In fact, nobody in the church needs to know about that. Resolve it there. Okay? The principle is, is whether it's in a family or out between two people in different families, the principle is here. Keep that circle of, uh, of, of, um, the process as small as possible. That's why Jesus says, just go to that person one-on-one if you need to, if you can at first. Now, sometimes you can't, sometimes it's not appropriate, but you still, the principle is keep it as small as possible and then gradually, slowly enlarge it as needed. Now, when he says go to the church, that sounds like, to me, it sounds like, okay, everybody knows now. And I don't think that's necessarily true. And I also think that has to do with the size of the church. I think there's a lot of factors here. So think about it. In these days, a church would have been a house church. Okay? It would have been a smaller number than we have here today. Okay? So, um, and they would also would have been very much closer to one another relationally than we are. Okay? Like, it would be kind of like if we all lived in the same neighborhood, that kind of close. We all work together. We all go to the same grocery stores. We all buy our gas at the same gas station kind of close because they lived in a community where they were and everything was in walking distance. You lived near a lot of your family. Your family didn't move far. I mean, for your, you know, your you know how every family seems to have one kid that moves far away from home? Well, like they're in the next block over. Wow, they went all the way to the next block. You know, that's so your family's tight, and then you have the extended family, and then you have really close friends that are like family. And this is where the word in the New Testament oikos comes from, which means household, which is actually really good for us to think about when we think about family in America today, because our families today are more broken up and uh, more mixed than ever before. You can have a household of people and none of them are related. So, you know, and when the Bible talks about households, it, it actually includes people that aren't related to you. It's whomever is under the roof. So it included family, it included extended family, it included servants, it included their family, it included employees, it included crazy Uncle Joe, it included everybody that was living in that home or was coming for meals regularly, even if they live somewhere else, okay? that's And then that's how churches were formed. It was that network of families. A lot of times, one person that family would come to Christ and come back and tell everybody else, and they would all find salvation in Christ, and that whole household would be transformed. This is why um, the church grew like it grew in the early days. It's because it wasn't just an individual coming to Christ. It was families coming to Christ, and God was doing some amazing work. Well, as it relates to the church here, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. I do think, depending on the polity of the church, that an intermediate step here, and some commentators were actually, I didn't even think about this, said that sometimes you would just take this to the elders or the leaders of the church, however your church is led. If it's a Baptist church, then you would take it to the deacons or whoever, or maybe staff, depending on how they're, they're structured. Here we have um, a, a plurality of elders, and so um, that would be the the next stop probably there. And they imply that that's as far as it would need to go. I think it depends. I think there are times when it needs to go to the whole membership, and, and there there's another opportunity for that person to repent. Because remember, every step along the way, the goal is we want to see repentance and restoration for that person. Okay? Because here's the thing. If you're a member of a church, 
And this is why, by the way, I think membership is so important. It's one of the reasons anyway. You have said publicly, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I believe that not only he has saved me, but he has called me to this fellowship, and I'm under the, the leadership of, the, of, the, of this church, Therefore, and I want to be held accountable to live the life Jesus has called me to live that we're all in agreement of in, in the New Testament. And so when, if you are not a member, then it's like, well, there's no, I have an, I have an authority maybe in the level of brother in Christ, but I don't have, I'm not your elder or I'm not your pastor. I'm just another person saying this is what I see. But if if you have chosen to be under that leadership, then what you're saying is I'm willing to submit to that leadership. And what what the whole idea of increasing the size of that circle is to give more objective input into what's happening and being confronted there. Now let me back up for just a second. As we go back to that very first one, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you've won them over. This is not saying that every time somebody sins against you, you need to start this process. Okay. I would say most of the time you don't need to do this. Okay. Because a lot of the times when people sin against, some translations say offend, haven't committed an offense against you or offend you. Right. You and I, there's a couple of things here. One is we have a choice whether to be offended or not. Right. We don't have to be offended. Just because you say something that's offensive to me doesn't mean I have to be offended. Sometimes you'll say something to me, I'll be offended, and what you said was actually true, and there's no reason for me to be offended, and I'm offended, right? We know that happens. And then there are times when, um, you know, I mean, there's times when I say things up here that's offensive to you, and it's like, you have a choice. You can respond, and you can ask me or talk to me about that later, or you can just, you know, um, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to forgive and move on. This is how I have to drive down I-26, forgiving and moving on. <laughs> And this is how everybody driving around me has to drive, hopefully forgiving me and moving on. We hopefully are, are just realizing um, love covers a multitude of sins. And, and we're living in that First Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Let, let's, let's just embrace that for a second, okay? Um, be quick to forgive. Yeah, but what if they don't deserve it? <laughs> Do they ever really? <laughs> Right? When someone wrongs you, you never feel like they, de- they deserve forgiveness, and, and maybe they don't ever. We still have a choice, right? If I don't forgive, withholding forgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting it to hurt them. It just doesn't make sense, right? That's where bitterness comes from. So let's just be quick to forgive and let love cover a multitude of sins. However, there are times when serious sins, sins you don't expect Christians to commit, happen. Sins that are clear in Scripture, that... Anybody on a good day would not have a problem saying, yes, that's clearly a big deal. Then you, sometimes you just, you gotta confront. Okay? In the context of a local church, Jesus gives these very specific examples. When you start talking about two Christians and one's in a different church, I'm not sure other than those early stages how far you can go because I mean, I'm not disciplining somebody in another church, and you don't want to be disciplined from a pastor in another church, right? That doesn't make any sense. That's like me disciplining my neighbor's kids. That's like, no, you can't do that, right? That's why local churches matter. That's why membership matters. Because you are saying when you join a fellowship, I trust the leadership enough here to put myself under their authority. I believe God has put them in that authority, imperfect though they are, and I'm going to submit to that. Obviously, if they do it poorly or wrongly, 
you, you're going to have a place to speak to that. Right? And, and this is where the body comes in. Leadership is ultimately accountable to God through the fellowship, through the congregation. You choose your leaders, and if you don't like how they're behaving, you can choose some more. You have that freedom, you have that right as members of this local church. And most local churches have a form of polity that allow that to happen. That's why it's important that you're involved in the selection of your leaders. It's why it matters that you ask them questions, that you get to know them, that you, in some sense, get a sense of whether you feel good about choosing them. Because when it comes time to this, to do things like this, Right? First of all, nobody wants to do this, but when, but it is necessary. There are times when this is necessary for the purity and the, and the integrity of a church to be the, the holy, blameless community of faith that God has called us to be. This is what He calls us to do. Now, the last few couple of verses are going to speak to the question of the person who has been, um, uh, confronted and they've gone through all the steps and they're like, no, I'm not repenting. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. In fact, who gave you the right? Right? This is why some people who have been um, removed from membership sue a church. They don't have the right to do that. Well, Jesus says differently. Starting in verse 18, he says, Truly I tell you, which means write this down, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, that sounds familiar because we just read it two chapters ago in, in Matthew 8 and Matthew 16 when Peter, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. By saying you are the Christ or you are the Messiah, he's saying you are the anointed one. You are the King of kings. You are sent from God to us to rule and lead us. And because he did that, Jesus said, and I'll read it to you. This is in um, 16, uh, 17. Blessed are you, Simon, of, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that, on, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And um, so the Catholic Church would believe that that at that moment, Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom to Peter, and they essentially called him the first pope. And that every after Peter, there was another pope, and they all have the keys to the kingdom. As, as Protestant, and I follow that tradition, um, we would say that, no, Jesus was giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the apostles, and they, in turn, gave them to the leaders of the church, okay, the elders and pastors of the churches, okay, and, and really the body of Christ, Collectively, we have this authority, and, and that authority is given to the elders of the church to, to forgive, to, not to forgive sins, but to proclaim these sins are forgiven. Not to declare, um, you must be removed from this church, but to do by through, by going through the process saying, heaven is saying, you must be removed because of these, because of you've not repented and believed. So, I don't think this loosing and binding is something that I can muster up. I don't think it's something that I can do. I have the, the authority to declare what heaven has already done. And heaven is saying, when you follow this process and you get to the place where somebody needs to be removed, you have the authority of Jesus through the apostles to do that. That's what that, I think that's what that means. Okay? 
And we also have the authority to welcome people back when they repent and prove and show they're a believer in Christ. Because at the end of the day, I don't, I don't want to ever have to ask anyone to leave. And it's not me, it's the leadership, the elders, after prayerfully over time working through this process, starting small and working out and, and trying to help this person see if they are genuinely sinning against God, help them see where they're wrong and why that repentance is needed. You're looking at the heart of the person, not that you can see their heart, but you're looking at their attitude and they're, you're listening to their words and you're watching their behavior. What is the fruit? What is the, uh, that gives us some clue as to the root of their faith or lack thereof? Okay. And at some point, those leaders have to discern they stay or they go. Okay. And sometimes they force that, the person forces their, the hand of the leaders to make that decision. Sometimes they leave before they, before that decision is made. Um, and that's, that's just the way it oftentimes plays out. But you need to know, especially if you're not a member of this church and you're thinking about it, you need to know that we practice church discipline because it's here, not because we enjoy it. Um, it's not a common occurrence. In 16 years, I can think of twice we've done that. Very clear, very clear that there was sins being committed and there was an unwillingness to repent, humble themselves, and make that right. Okay? And so at some point, you just kind of left with, well, I mean, let, let's just be, let's just say it like it is. Who's to blame when someone is excommunicated from a church? The person who is unrepentant. Okay? And um, if leaders aren't willing to do what they're supposed to do when that is appropriate, then they are. Then they shouldn't be leaders. Because if you, it's, it's kind of if you have chosen leaders to do things like that because that protects the integrity of the church, and they're not willing to do that, then they're not protecting the flock. So that's that's there. So he ends up with this last uh, two verses. Nineteen. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. He's saying the same thing two different ways. He's saying that, and this is hard for us because when we think of churches, we tend to think of larger than house churches churches, right? But there were times when there's only a couple, three elders in a church, and the church is maybe 25 people. And so sometimes these decisions were made by two or three people. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm with you in that. I'm with you in that. You have my authority. I am with you. He is not talking about how to have a prayer meeting. And if you have two or three, then Jesus is there and you can have prayer meeting. Jesus is with us when I, Jesus is with me wherever I go. Okay. The context is this is specifically a verse for church discipline. Now, if you're a parent, you understand that a house without discipline is not a good place. The kids rule the roost, and it's just chaos, all right? The book of Proverbs says that a, a man without discipline is like a city without walls. And a city without walls in the old days wasn't called a city. It was called a town because it didn't have walls. And my modern translation is a man without discipline is like a house without windows or doors. Don't know about you, but I don't really want to sleep in my house at night in my neighborhood with the doors off and the windows open if I have any hint of any kind of concern for security, right? That you're just not as safe. 
and, and the, he's saying that we are vulnerable when we don't have discipline. Okay? Discipline is not a bad word. Discipline is a word that communicates love. Now, you can do it poorly, and that doesn't communicate love. Clearly, um, if you discipline in anger, that's not good. That's not okay, right? Um, it took me a long time to figure out not only was it, was it not good, but if I discipline my children in anger, one, it doesn't usually go well for them, and it certainly doesn't go well for me when I realize and I feel that conviction, and then I have to go to the Lord, and then I have to go to them. And, you know, it's much better to say <laughs> what we used to do, go sit on the bed, and that was for them to cool down, and that was for me to cool down before I went and talked to them about whatever we're going to talk about and then decide on the, the punishment for that situation. Then we can actually, you know, you can be mad at me because I'm going to follow through on the punishment, but at least we're not, you're not going to be mad at me because I'm erupting and being inappropriately angry or loud in the moment. As I know there's times when I've been treated that way by a parent maybe, and I reacted to the way they reacted to me instead of to the issue. This is what we like to do. And we see that in political commentary all the time, right? Just outrage over the outrage instead of the issue. And we get start throwing things at each other, and we it's not about the issue anymore. It's about the person, and it's personal. So, um, so I, I would just end that to say Jesus is going to continue to really talk about forgiveness in the next part of this chapter, okay? And here's what he's going to get at. He's going to say, when we have a low view of sin, we see the offenses, the offenses or the sin that comes at us as something great, as in the sense of a lot, not great. And we don't see how that offense is against the Lord. But when we see sin for what it really is, in other words, how offensive it is to a holy, righteous creator God, and we think back to the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we have forgiven those who sinned against us, we start to get things in the right order. And it all comes back to this forgiveness thing, doesn't it? You know? Imagine a church where everybody was so quick to forgive. There was almost no offense. There was no gossip. There was no drama because people just they were just gracious and merciful. And yeah, once in a while there might be a big issue and we have to deal with it. Okay, we'll deal with that. That's what we're, that's what we're aiming for here. A place where you feel like, okay, this isn't a group of perfect people. We have our issues. We have our arguments. We have our, our contentious confrontations, but we work through them because we care about each other more than winning an argument. It's not about being right. Love rule. When in doubt, just always come back to the word love. Okay. It's so important. We put it on the building just to remind me, if nobody else, love God. Love people. You get those two down, you're going to be doing some, you're going to be doing pretty well as a person and as a family and as a church. Well, let's do that. Let's not just say that. Let's not just put it on the building. Let's pray that God would make us a people that individually and collectively loves people through so much that we're even willing to forgive our enemies, even though they don't deserve it. Okay. You don't have to trust them to forgive them. You don't have to act as if what they did never happened to forgive them, okay? They don't have to deserve it. They don't have to ask for it. Just forgive. Forgive. When they cut you off on the interstate, forgive them. You know how they say in the South, right? God bless you. <laughs> well, mean it maybe. 
And so next week when we look at this parable of the unmerciful servant, we're going to see a gross injustice occur. And we're going to look at this parable, and I promise you when you look at this parable, you're going to go, I can't believe that guy. And I bet if your heart is open, you're going to go, I am that guy. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to lead to healing. Lord, you discipline because you love your children. A loving parent disciplines their children. It's not pleasant for either one, but it's good. It's so hard for us. We're on the receiving end of that. We don't like to be on the receiving end of discipline because it is painful, and yet it is good. When, and even when it's done poorly, you can use it for good, though we want to do it well. And we need to repent when we don't. That's true for families and parents. And that's true for church leaders and church bodies. It's true for us. It's true for others. Lord, there's a whole list of things that people could be convicted of right now, including myself. Lord, I just lift all of those up to you right now. I pray that you would find open hearts that are receptive to the the discipline that we are feeling even now. Some of us have confronted others and we've done it poorly. And we need to we need to go to them and say, I've sinned against you by how I've called you out for your sin. Some of us need to repent because we haven't called someone out that is clearly doing something in the body, in the context of believers, is wrong. And some of us have been called out and we have not responded well. We have not responded with humility and repentance. We have not apologized and owned it and taken responsibility for our actions. We've come up with a hundred other excuses and reasons why we shouldn't. Lord, I don't know what you're trying to say to us today. I'm so, Someone's probably convicted about membership today. I mean, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I just know that you're doing because that's what you do. You work through your word, through your spirit, through your people to make us like your son. And that's a good thing. If we would just slow down and let you. If we would just be honest with ourselves. We just pray for your mercy and your grace in the midst of us trying to be. And at the end of the day, Lord, I know that it's just we're afraid. We're just afraid. We're letting fear rule instead of love. And rule, fear and love cannot rule at the same time. We cannot love when we are full of fear and we cannot. Lord, I pray that you would help us realize that in Christ we are free from the enslavement of fear. We don't have to be afraid of what other people think. We don't have to fear losing good things. We don't have to be afraid of being out of control. We don't have to be afraid of being alone. We don't have to be afraid of being disciplined. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to press through the temptation of fear and to lean into the goodness that is loving confrontation that leads to restoration of relationship. I can't control when somebody doesn't respond to my initiation, but I can control what I do with that going forward. Help us to surrender 
our rights to confront when they are not received. Help us to forgive those who will not reconcile. And may you flood our hearts with your peace when we do that well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.